Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. We just returned from another trip to Israel, and one of my favorite spots is the Temple Mount. It's the holiest site in Judaism. The problem is there's no temple there any longer. Yet the Jews continue to pray there. Why? why? Why is it so powerful and so compelling to these people to pray at a missing temple? And should it be compelling to us as well? So when you're there, when you're at the Western Wall, you know, you're always going to see Jewish people praying. They're going to be praying there at the wall. Uh, Just lots of people congregating around there all the time praying at the wall. It's currently their most holy site. And, you know, we had people asking while we were on the trip, why do the Jewish people pray at the wall? You know, when you go there and you're standing there, it feels like they're praying to the wall. Feels like they're praying to the stones of the wall, but that's not what they're doing. They're praying to God. They're praying to the same God that we pray to. They're praying to Yahweh, um, but they're praying there at the wall because the wall is the remaining wall of the temple. Uh, that doesn't stand there any longer. Uh, The Jews pray to God at the site, at the edge of the site where the temple used to stand. The temple was of penultimate importance in Judaism. The temple is the place where God dwells. The temple is the place where the Jews were always supposed to go and to pray. The temple is the holy site. It's the place where God dwells dwells but there's a big problem today the temple doesn't exist anymore it's no longer there hasn't been there since august of 70 a.d when it was destroyed by the romans as part of their effort to scatter the jewish people to disperse them because they had been such a nuisance to them for so long so they controlled the area then they scattered the people they knocked all the the stones down burned the city burned the temple um and scattered the people and rome continued to control the area but it kind of became sort of a wasteland for really hundreds of years and then that area uh, byzantine jerusalem was taken over by the muslim caliphate years later in 638 a.d and very soon after that they built their holy site, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aska Mosque, right there on the Temple Mount. The mount, the big platform where the second temple had once stood, now there stands the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aska Mosque. Here's the eastern gate, and you can't see the western wall from here because it's taken from the opposite side, but it's down below just on the other side of these trees right here. And so the reason that the Jewish people pray there at the western wall is because they are commanded to pray at the temple, and that western wall is the closest they can get. 
They can't pray upon this site. This is a Muslim holy site now. So Jewish people are not allowed to pray there. So they get as close as they can to the spot where the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God used to be. They get as close as they possibly can and they pray there at at that wall. In other words, here's what's going on. It's the first blank on your page. They're praying to an imaginary temple. They're praying to an imaginary temple, a temple that once existed but now no longer exists. It only exists in their imagination. Yet they still pray right there. They still get as close as they can to that spot. Why? Why is the idea of the temple so powerful in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people that 1,953 years after it's been destroyed, why are they still compelled to go there and pray towards a non-existent temple? Well, to understand, you, you really have to go back in the story. You have to go back to the beginning. You have to go all the way back, really, to creation. If you're going to understand the idea of the temple, you got to go all the way back to Eden, right? You know the story. God created the entire world. He created the whole universe. He spoke it all into existence. Uh, And then he made, at this one specific spot, he made this garden, this garden called Eden. In fact, here's what it says in Genesis 2. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's in the middle of the garden? The tree of life and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eden is a unique place in all the universe. It's the place where the spiritual and the physical kind of overlap. It's the specific boundaries inside which man and God could commune together. God and man walking in the cool breezes of the day together, speaking face to face. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, we we can't even hardly comprehend that at this point. But this is what God desired. This was his design for the universe and for human beings, is for us to exist in Eden with him, to be able to see him, to be able to talk to him, to be able to relate to him. This is it, man. Eden is perfection on earth. Think about it. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no Bible. There's no religion because you don't need any. This is pre-fall Eden when man and God are free to walk and talk together. This is what God wanted. No pain, no suffering, no addiction, no taxes, and no peeps. I'm telling you right now, there were no peeps in Eden. Peeps came after the fall. You know peeps. My wife loves them, a little marshmallow candy. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. 
God created a beautiful place of perfection, no peeps, no taxes, no addiction, no pain, no suffering, and he wanted to be with us there in that garden. And then we see that there's this important part of this creation story that really ought to mean a lot to us. In Genesis 1:27, it says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He wanted us to look like him, to act like him, to speak for him here. And then, look what it says. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This is a hugely important mandate that God gives. It's this idea of you are in the garden. Now I want you to rule in the garden and to expand out from here. This is hugely important. This is an important assignment for us. Theologians call it the dominion Mandate. We are to have dominion over the entire world because when we bring everything under our authority, we're in line with God's authority, so we're bringing it under God's authority. The dominion mandate to bring order, to bring beauty, to bring peace and light, to bring delight, to bring Eden to the rest of the world. The, the, the word Eden is the Hebrew word for delight. So we're to bring the delight into the world. Our mandate, next blank on your page, our mandate is to expand the delight, to live the delight. We don't delight in the things of this world. We don't delight even in the world itself. All this world is to be brought in line with him. That is his order. That's the order he brings. And so we are to delight in him, not the things of this world. We're to be delighted when everything works the way he designed it to be. We delight ourselves in him. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, let the Lord be your Eden. Delight yourself in him and he will give you the desires of your heart. So we have a mandate in Eden. The problem is that we didn't want to delight in the Lord, right? We didn't think he was delightful enough. In fact, we heard the accuser say that God's holding out on us. He's holding back and there's stuff that we don't know yet and that, that he's not our delight. We should be our own delight. We should rise up and become like God. So we disobeyed. We rebelled against God. We ate of the fruit in a very self-centered, self-worshipping way. And that turned us into criminals against a holy God. It turned us into traitors against him. And Romans tells us that when we fell, when we betrayed God, that all creation fell with us. Everything was ruined because of our fall. God had mandated that we spread the delight. But next blank on your page, we expanded chaos instead. We expanded the chaos, the wilderness instead. And that's why we live the way we live. That's why there's pain and suffering. 
That's why there's taxes and there will never be less taxes. That's, that's why we fight in our marriages. That's why we struggle in our existence just to make a living. It's because of the curse that came as a result of the fall. We introduce sin into the world and we bring chaos wherever we go. But God had a plan to redeem this. Now you're like, okay, now wait a minute. We started off talking about the temple. Now we're all the way back at creation. Hold on, I'm gonna get there, I promise. I'm gonna get there. God had a, God had a plan to redeem the world back to himself. All of his beautiful creation ruined by our fall, but God had a plan. So he had a plan. He called in Genesis 12, he called Abram out of the wilderness and said, hey, get up from where you've been living. Go to the place that I will show you and I'll make you the father of many nations. He made promises to Abram, renamed Abraham and said, you, you will become this father of many nations. Even though you're old, even though you have no kids of your own, you'll have many nations of your own and it's through your line I will bring the deliverer one day. Abraham follows God and sure enough, God gives him a son, gives him many children, gives them tribes. They become entire tribes of people, a nation of people, a big nation of people that ends up being protected in Egypt for that great famine. Remember that story? They, they go into Egypt because there's a terrible famine and they're protected there. But remember, the curse has happened. The fall has happened. Everything ends up going bad. So they go into Egypt uh, to be protected, but they end up becoming what? Come on, you can say it. Slaves. They end up becoming slaves there in Egypt, and they're desperate. They're crying out to God, please save us. You promised, you promised that you'd bless. You promised that you would save us. And so they're crying out to God, and God hears them, and he calls another man. He calls Moses, descendant of Abraham, and he says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from slavery. And you know the story. Sure enough, they're miraculously, divinely delivered out of Egypt to go across the sea. And they're saved. But now they're in the wilderness again. And God says to him, he says, okay, now that I've done the work of saving you, do you want to have a relationship with me? Because I designed you so that I could live with you, so that I could live among you. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. See, God's great desire is the same. And so he initiates this covenant with them. They're like, you bet, we want to do that. So they start this covenant from God, and the arrangement is that the people of God would become pure through the law and the sacrifices, and that God would live among them and would be their God. This is the arrangement of that first covenant. And so in this, in becoming pure through the law and the sacrifices, God wanted to dwell among them, so he needed a place. He needed a place in which he could dwell because the covenant, as good as it was, wasn't perfect. There was still separation between God and the people. So he says, have him build me a, a tabernacle, right? And he gave clear instructions on the tabernacle. In fact, here's how it starts out. Uh, Exodus 25, have the people of Israel, he's talking to Moses, God is, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary 
so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. And so God sets up through Moses and the people a temporary meeting space. It's a tent among the people. And you can see that there's separation between where all the people lived and the inner courts. And then there's separation again. There's the holy place where only the priest could go. And then inside that, there's even more separation. There's a veil, and there's the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. The inside of that room, the holy of holies in the tabernacle, is about 15 feet by 15 feet square, probably about the size of your bedroom. It's not a really huge place for the God of the universe to dwell. It's in a tent, but God desires to be among his people. And so the tabernacle is the place where he lives. It's portable. Remember, this is a portable nation. They don't have a land of their own yet. So the tabernacle goes wherever they go. And Moses would meet with God in the tabernacle. Moses, the high priest, would meet with God there. In Exodus 33, it says, As he, Moses, went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. They would be humble and reverent. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Does that harken back to anything? Does that sound like something that God had desired at the beginning? Face to face speaking with his people. This whole thing ought to really harken back to something because as you read the instructions, don't have time for all of them now, but as you read the instructions on building the tabernacle and later the temple, it's adorned with elements that harken back. Flowers, trees, the bread and the menorah. The menorah represents what? You know what the menorah represents? The tree of life. So all this harkens back. Everything you see when you, when you enter into the tabernacle and later into the temple, all this harkens back. The whole purpose of the temple is, next blank on your page, the temple reminded us of the garden. The temple is all about reminding us of God being among his people where he desires to be, talking face to face. But still not perfect. It's still not a perfect arrangement. There's still that separation because here's the temple. This is the, these are the outer courts, um, you know, here, and you got the inner court, then you got the holy place, and, and inside there you got the holy of holies. And the priests can go into the holy place, but nobody can go into the holy of holies. It's separated from the holy place by a veil. In the temple, the veil is 60 feet tall and four inches thick. This is no little wedding veil over your face. This is a serious curtain because there's serious separation between God and man. Nobody goes through the curtain except for the high priest. The high priest himself can go into the Holy of Holies, but then only one day a year. You know what day it is? 
It's the day of atonement. On that day, and on that day alone, the high priest and the high priest alone can approach the presence of God to make atonement on behalf of his people. The Bible doesn't tell us this. Tradition says that so fearsome is the presence of God that the priest would not dare go in there without a bell around his neck and a rope around his ankle. Because if he goes in there and he's moving around in there, the other priests in the holy place can hear him dingling around in there. But if they hear a thud and no more bell, now they got a way to pull him back out again because he's just been killed in the presence of God. That's how fearsome it is for people to be in the presence of God, that even the holiest among us might just be killed in the presence of the holiness of God. So this is an important place for the Jewish people, the temple built on the very rock that God had assigned them to build it on, the very place where Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then God provided a substitute. In that very spot, this place was a very holy and important place to the Jewish people, and they conducted the old covenant in this place. But then, as promised, God ended the old covenant by starting a new covenant. Can I get an amen on the new covenant? Here is the new covenant. Look at this, John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth god himself came to live among us in the person of jesus christ i love this because when john's telling us this he uses this word we translate it dwelt the word here that he uses is actually the word tabernacle the word became flesh and tabernacled among us God tabernacled here he dwelled here lived here with us Jesus is God in the flesh and we've seen already in our Mark study what he does he comes and he teaches with exousia authority right he uh, heals people with power he casts out all of the evil spirits and Jesus himself says in John 2, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He says this to people who are like, you, what are you talking about? How are you going to destroy? You're going to rebuild? It took us years to build this temple. How can you rebuild it in three days? But the disciples later realized what he meant when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, because that's exactly what happened even with the old covenant, there was still great separation between people and God. Great separation because of our sin, and it puts us under the judgment of God where any sinner, all sinners, spend an eternity in hell after this life. That's God's judgment. That's the penalty that we've earned from our rebellion. You've earned it. I've earned it for sure. And so he's given us this penalty that we got to pay but Jesus came and he 
perfect and sinless goes to that cross where all of the blame and all the judgment for your sin and my sin were laid upon Jesus and he shed his blood to pay the price for your sin and my sin. He took all the punishment. He took all the wrath of God that's against you and me on himself. And he died and he went to that tomb, cold and dead, no brainwaves. But three days later, he rose again with new life. And today, he gives that new life to you. If you're in Christ, you have his new life, his exousia, his authority, his power in your life. You are a new creature. All the old things have passed away. And behold, look, he's making you new. Am I right? Amen. Amen. That's what he's doing in us. Praise the Lord. So that's the new covenant. That's what he's doing in us. Now, this is really interesting. This is really, really interesting when talking about the temple. No one is certain who the author of the book of Hebrews was. But most scholars believe that Hebrews was written in the mid-60s. Not the 1960s, you old people. The mid-60s, like, you know, 60 A.D., they believe probably written in 65, 66, 67, somewhere right in there. Critical to know this date because in the book of Hebrews, the author has a long passage where they quote Jeremiah 31. And it's really important to understand in light of the temple, in light of the old covenant, what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. The new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. But when the author of Hebrews is writing this, he's writing this to a bunch of people that are still stuck in the old covenant. They're still all about going and conducting the covenant, doing their prayers and making their sacrifices at the temple in 65, 66, 67 AD. It's right after this quote that the author of Hebrews makes his own little note on this. And here's what he says. He says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. He says the, the first covenant, the old covenant, it's obsolete, doesn't apply to you anymore, and it's about to vanish into thin air. And what happened just less than a handful of years after this was written? 
70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and knocked down the temple destroying it never to be rebuilt to this day in fact you go there and you can see the very stones from the wall of the temple that the Romans knocked down still laying in the piles where they landed 1,953 sorry 1,952 years and 11 months ago still laying right there see I took this picture this week and this next picture I took in 2007 when I was over there with Global doing a camp in Petatikva. So yeah, um, so this, this shows that the author of Hebrews was making a prophecy about how the old would, would, would go away. It would literally disappear. It would vanish from the earth. And today, because the new temple arrived, Jesus, he lives in you and where is the dwelling place of God now huh huh come on it's right here it's right here now there is no separation between God and us there's no four inch thick veil we don't have to hide out and stay away and hope God's not going to kill us when we're in his presence now today he lives in you he, he speaks to you he's changing you he's making everything about you new he's reworking you into his image the image he designed you to be in the garden in the first place that's what he's doing in you praise the Lord that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you he writes to the church of Ephesus and he says this now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Amen? Amen. Peter says that you are living stones, and God is building into sorry uh, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple so I know this I understand this and I'm walking around with my church friends at the temple wall the western wall and all around us people are praying and nodding trying to be as close to that temple spot as they possibly can and they have no idea that the temple is moving among them even as they pray they have no idea that at that moment they're closer than they ever could imagine being to the temple itself so we gathered together circled up us Christians and we prayed, we didn't pray toward a temple. We prayed for the people all around us at the moment. We say, God, let their eyes be opened. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that you might just pour out your spirit on these people so that they too could become the temple of God. Because that's our job. That's our mandate. We are to expand the garden, expand the temple, expand the dwelling place of God. He deserves a bigger house.
And so for you and I to hold it in and to keep our mouths shut and to not tell anybody about him, not win people to Christ, we're telling God, no, your space is big enough. We got it defined now, it's big enough. So how do we do that? Come on, psalmist, delight yourself in the Lord. Let him be your Eden. Let him be the desire of your heart. Live that and you won't be able to help but expand the garden all around you. Live that and people will be begging to step into the garden themselves. Live that and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against you, right? Our role, last blank on your page, is to expand the garden, amen? Amen. 